0: Hello, welcome to The Wire, where you can get independent coverage of current affairs on your local community radio station, wherever you are, right around Australia. I'm Roderick Chambers in Sydney, and coming up on The Wire today...
1: Men don't have a right to rape, and many men don't rape, but men have a collective responsibility to stop rape.
0: It's Sexual Violence Awareness Month in Queensland, and there are reports about sexual violence in Australia's universities as well in the news we take a look at what's happening and who can help but first pro-palestinian protests have erupted throughout australia over israel's bombardment of the gaza strip this came after hamas's incursion which saw the killing and kidnapping of many israeli civilians New South Wales Police has announced Operation Shelter in response to calls for another rally in Hyde Park in the centre of Sydney. James Montemayor has this
2: report. The attention received by pro-Palestinian protesters at Sydney's Opera House was not expected, but it has opened a can of worms regarding protest laws and how the state and federal governments deal with, essentially, a civil right. Nevertheless, I spoke to Brent Carlyle, Director of Public Affairs at the Zionist Federation of Australia, on his opinion on the matter.
3: I hope that the overwhelming majority of people that would attend a rally to support the Palestinian movement, who are worried about the situation in Gaza, I am hopeful that the vast majority of them would be uh, appalled by Uh, the terrorist attacks that occurred in the name of Palestine in Israel on Saturday. However, we have seen time and again, and the event in front of the Sydney Opera House was not uh, an event in isolation. We have seen time and again that there is a dangerous minority within the pro-Palestinian community that wants to do harm to Australian Jews. Here's a point of comparison. Tonight in Melbourne, there is a Jewish community vigil. There will be candle lighting. there will be songs sung. The premier yeah. will be there. There is going to be a very large security presence there, and that large security presence is going to be protecting the people in that village. Compare that to pro-Palestinian rallies, where there is always a very large security presence. But that security presence is protecting passers-by from people within the protests. The police advise Jews to stay away because it is dangerous for them and they cannot guarantee the safety of Jewish Australians in the vicinity of pro-Palestinian movements. It is a sharp, horrendous dichotomy and that is why the Jewish community is so upset about the people or at least the minority of people that are in these protests. You say that the protests were hijacked. That might be true. But those people will want to attend those protests, and politely asking them to stay away will not work.
2: Do you think it's necessary to have police enact Operation Shelter?
3: It's their job to secure the safety of Australians. Now, the police have judged that the safety of some Australians are under threat, And there is a possibility that their safety will be, or or that 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 threat might be realised. So they are taking extraordinary measures in order to secure the safety of Australian citizens. Now, if the police were to make an announcement saying these new powers are going to be permanent, and from now on we can, you know, then that I'm sure would be bad. But this is an acute situation. Um, I'm pretty sure the operation the police have set up is just while the current tension between, or current war between Hamas and Israel continues. And I'm pretty sure the police will stand down this operation as soon as tensions in Australia subside.
2: I spoke to Aidan Ricketts, Southern Cross University law lecturer and author of the activist Handbook on the status of protest laws in New South Wales and Australia.
0: There's unmistakably a trend of uh, increasingly draconian anti-protest laws around Australia. So New South Wales... Um, you know, has had probably five or six iterations of, of increasingly draconian anti-protest laws, but we've seen them in just about every state.
2: There could be a legal challenge to decision by the Premier. What do you think about that?
0: Well, look, it's always worth doing. I mean, I think perhaps one of the issues that's most pressing here is, you know, th- these powers already exist. They're already in the legislation, uh, and they're quite far-reaching. I can, you know, summarise them for you if you like, but... Um, I think in this particular scenario, you know, there's a political question probably about whether the government appears to be taking a side on what is a very long-running and complicated historic dispute.
2: It's no doubt people will be heading to Hyde Park this Sunday. We can only hope there's no subtleties which could possibly warrant unwanted attention to both protesters and police.
0: James Montemayor there ending that report. Hey there, I'm Hamish MacDonald. Around Australia, you're listening to The Wire. Take it easy. This weekend, Australia heads to the polling booth to determine whether or not Indigenous Australians will receive constitutional recognition with the voice to Parliament. However, many are concerned that the resources provided to multicultural communities have been inaccessible, doing little to help linguistically diverse Australians make an informed decision. Joseph Hathaway Wilson has this report.
4: A Chinese-Australian family walk down the street. They sit at a park bench and paint the Chinese character for the word yes onto a sheet of paper before holding it up to the camera. This 30-second video is part of a series coordinated by the Yes campaign to influence multicultural communities in the upcoming referendum. But for many Australians of migrant backgrounds, such content has been prone to causing confusion.
5: It just blew my mind with how incredibly shallow that was. Didn't make any effort to engage with its perceived audience on a linguistic level with a shared language. It also just didn't say anything. It made no points. I remember watching that video and being like, this can't be it. There has to be more. But it was the end of the video.
4: Annabelle Liu is a second generation Australian whose parents migrated from the Guangdong province of China in the 1990s. For her, much of the lead-up to Australia's referendum on the voice to Parliament has been spent explaining the voice to Parliament to her father.
5: I don't think my parents really heard about the referendum until they got the booklet in the mail. And the first thing I realised about it when I was over at my dad's place is that it's in English and my dad just won't read anything that's in English. He's just not got a strong enough grasp of the language to really make much sense of it.
4: Annabelle believes that migrant communities in Australia have been treated like political tools rather than constituents. She claims that while the rest of the country is debating the topic of details in The Voice to Parliament, many linguistically diverse families are still grappling with the idea of the referendum itself.
5: In my experience, anyway, I don't think that the Yes campaign or the No campaign have particularly made the steps to actually engage with, I suppose, migrant communities, but even within that... Obviously it's not a monolith there's different language groups there's different cultural groups and religious groups all of which have different perspectives that will affect the way that they vote in the referendum one thing i feel like they have done is create i suppose identity groups and play on that identity politics of it a lot saying that this group supports the yes vote so you should vote this way or this group doesn't support the yes vote and so you should vote this way
4: In Australia γίνεται диалог σχετικά με το δημοψήφισμα Translated resources concerning the voice to parliament, including the official referendum booklet, can be found on the community toolkit on the Australian government's official website for the referendum. Additionally, non-for-profit NGOs such as Life Without Barriers have taken on the responsibility of creating human-centered translations and explanatory videos in up to 45 different languages. However, Some members of linguistically diverse families say that such resources are nowhere near visible enough for the Australians who need them. Pamela Ronciokas is a third-generation Australian whose grandparents migrated from Greece in the 1960s. Her grandmother, who is not proficient in written or spoken English, is yet to encounter any resources in her own language.
6: I think I even asked her, like I said to her, have you received any information about the voice of parliament in Greek? And she said to me, no, nothing. Absolutely nothing. She's a proactive woman. She, she works. She goes to church she in a community group. She goes to the gym like it's catered for that generation where they're all migrants. You'd think that there would be information. There was there was nothing. She doesn't know anything. She's, she's practically walking in there like blind.
4: The inaccessibility of resources has landed pressure on English-speaking members of linguistically diverse families to act as both translators and, in many instances, instructors as to how their family should vote.
6: It's actually really really frustrating on my end as well because, you know, she's relying on my opinions to make her own vote, which is not fair. You know, she's a democratic citizen. She's an Australian citizen. You know, she attained Australian citizenship. So, you know, she should have the right to be provided resources to, to make an informed decision, and she hasn't. And I think that the Yes campaign kind of fell short in that regard.
4: Even when translated resources are accessible, migrants and linguistically diverse families are sometimes left in the dark by the lack of reference these resources make to colonisation or the disadvantages faced by First Nations communities today. None of the fact sheets, infographics or videos in the government's community toolkit establish context prior to 2017 for the Voice to Parliament. The referendum booklet, which is 24 pages long, makes a singular reference to the shorter life expectancies and higher suicide rates among First Nations communities found on the first page of the case for voting yes. Gürtse Chalishkan, the Australian daughter of Turkish migrants, says that the lack of context is an added hindrance to immigrant families who are seeking to understand the referendum.
6: So I believe that the pamphlet that the government has provided us is just a translation of what's happening right now but it doesn't acknowledge what has happened and led up to this point of the referendum. It doesn't talk about the history of the Indigenous communities and what has happened to them for a vote to come in. We are missing a certain chunk of history and we're not teaching that and there's no translation of that for the immigrants to know that this, this, this has happened. This is why they want a voice to the parliament and this is why they don't have a voice to the parliament.
5: In the 1967
7: referendum, over 90% of Australians voted yes, feeling the time had come to
4: give Aborigines a fair go in the face of racial inequality. As voting day looms closer, the importance of multicultural communities in the referendum is critical. According to census data, the percentage of non-English speaking families currently sits at 28 and 27% in Victoria and New South Wales and 13% in Queensland. Meanwhile, the Essential Report shows approval for the voice to Parliament sitting between 40 and 47% in these states, making the vote of linguistic minorities in the referendum potentially decisive.
0: Joseph Hathaway Wilson there, ending that report. The conflict between Israel and Hamas is on a knife edge. The Associated Press has reported that Israel has ordered the evacuation of 1.1 million people from the northern part of Gaza, which is around half of the territory's population, within 24 hours. With thousands already killed over the last week, the conflict only looks like it is going to intensify in the coming days. Rodney Monk asked Peter Grester, professor at Macquarie University and former foreign correspondent, what it was like for people in the Middle East.
8: Well, I guess one of the things that you always appreciate about the Middle East is the sheer complexity of the story. Um, we often like to try and understand things in terms of right and wrong, goodies and baddies, um, but it's much—it's invariably much more complicated than that. It, it's very difficult to find an easy path, an easy narrative um, to the Middle East crisis and the crisis between the Palestinians and the Israelis in particular, Um Everybody has right, righteous claims. Everybody has a degree of, of blood on their hands. Both sides have a degree of blood on their hands. And so it's, it's incredibly difficult to try and, and navigate in ways that are, are relatively straightforward and easy to, to understand and characterize.
4: Mm. Uh, you've worked in, in Gaza, is that right?
8: Yes, that's right.
4: Right. And what was it? How long were you there and what was it like working there?
8: Um, I was there for a few months um, for the BBC um, between uh, more established correspondents. Um, I was there in 2007, shortly after Hamash had taken control of the Gaza Strip. Um, and, I, and I know it's, it's a bit of a cliché, but one of the things that really stuck with me that's always stayed with me is the way in which the place really does feel like an open-air prison. Um, when you enter Gaza... You have to go if you go through the Eretz Crossing, the main checkpoint um, between Israel and the Gaza Strip. You have to pass through a series of incredible secure, days of security um, through barbed wire fences, through gates, through metal detectors, through s- past sniffer dogs, um, surveillance cameras, um, searches, uh, metal detectors, everything. It really does feel like entering a high security prison. Um, and the feeling that you get when you're in there is much the same that everything that you do, everything that the ac- every, access to, to everything that's available in, in Gaza is really ultimately controlled by the Israelis. Um, in that environment, um, even though I am certainly no Islamist, I'm absolutely no support of Hamas, but it's equally very easy to become embittered and angry at the Israelis for the way in which they kept the, the region entirely cut off from, from the rest of the world.
4: Well it's, well, it's been reported that Israel is cutting off food, medicine and power to the Gaza Strip. What sort of effect do you think that will have on the people there?
8: I think that'll be, well, I mean, clearly it'll be devastating for, for, for the civilian population. Um, the fact that Israel has the power to cut off food, water, electricity and medical supplies, um, I think, is evidence of just how thoroughly the Israelis control it. Um, I know that Hamas has spent a lot of time building tunnels to try and get around the blockade, to try and find other ways of getting things in. But even if they are able to, it's it's always going to be extraordinarily limited. Um, I think one of the takeaways is that, that Hamas, for me, is that Hamas is, is an ideology, an extremist ideology, um, that were formed out of the, the Muslim Brotherhood, so they come with, with, with uh, very extreme religious ideas. But the fact is that anyone inside Gaza is going to be radicalized, even if it's not by Hamas, it, it's going to be by the conditions themselves. When you're subjected, as, particularly as a civilian um, who has done nothing, to Israel and simply trying to survive. It's very hard, it's very easy to become angry and embittered and, and to want to seek vengeance. Hamas has created a kind of ideology, an ideological framework for people inside Gaza to to hang their anger on to. But if if the Israelis even if the Israelis are able to dismantle Hamas, I don't think that will necessarily take away the anger and the frustration of a lot of ordinary civilians. You know, I need to be very, very clear that I absolutely condemn um, Hamas for their actions. And I'm not suggesting that Israel is in any way responsible for some of the atrocities that Hamas has been uh, recently committed. But equally, I think that that Israel will not be able to solve the problems by tightening the screws on the pressure cooker. Ultimately, um, it doesn't matter how hard you tighten things down, the pressure cooker will, ultimately, uh, will explode.
4: What does peace look like? Is it a two-state solution?
8: Um, look, the two-state solution for a long time has seemed viable, but the more that we see the settlements um, in the West Bank, um, I think the harder it is going to be for any two-state solution to, to, to exist. I mean, uh, I, I just don't I don't know quite what the solution is.
0: Professor Peter Grester, Professor of Journalism at Macquarie University and Executive Director of the Alliance for Journalists' Freedom, speaking there with Rodney Monk.
1: Hi, I'm Ray Martin. You're listening to The Wire on community and Indigenous radio right across Australia. Stay
0: well. Throughout this month, organisations like the Gold Coast Centre Against Sexual Violence are hosting events and activities to raise awareness about the impacts of sexual violence and support available to victims. In Queensland, 85% of sexual assault victims are women and more than half are under the age of 18 at the time of the assault, according to the ABS. Neda Finney asked survivor coach and survivor of childhood sexual abuse and incest, Carolyn Bruni, what does Sexual Violence Month mean to her?
7: So as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and incest. I Sexual Violence Awareness Month for me is a way of bringing this topic to the general public and to start conversations so we can not only support survivors of sexual violence but also create awareness so we can start reducing this problem in our society. What advice would you give someone who thinks they may have been sexually assaulted? So if it is something that's happened recently the first thing that I would recommend that the person does is to ensure that they look for opportunities for their safety. So definitely checking if they are not in any will not be in any further harm and then to gain some support from friends and family to decide what to do next. So that may be seeking support from police, it may be going to a trauma or recovery centre. There's a range of things that they can do quite quickly in that immediate post-sexual violence case. If the person is in a different scenario where they may be are reflecting on something that's happened in the past, and in the past could be a week ago, and they are looking at the information around sexual sexual violence and identifying that that is definitely something that they have been subjected to, then once again, making sure that one, their continued safety is there, but then looking at what support they feel they need. So some people want to, will want to talk. Some people will want to take some time to rest and recover before they go on what is likely to be a long healing journey. But I guess the first thing in both instances is to find good supporters to walk beside you through that journey because sometimes it can be a long journey as you work out what you want to do next. How can friends, family and colleagues support someone who's been subjected to sexual assault? Making sure the person is safe and can maintain their safety is the the first thing to ensure that they are not re-victimised with another type of violence or subjected to the sexual violence again. Making sure that they take time to actively listen and don't necessarily jump in and try to save or direct the, the survivor, victim survivor, as to what they should do next. The victim survivor's autonomy and independence in their decisions is the most important thing because they've already been disempowered by what they've been subjected to. So as a good supporter, making sure that you are there and you're actively listening and you're leaning into your empathy whilst ensuring that you are empowering the victim-survivor to make the decisions that work best for them.
1: Oh, my name's I McLeod and I'm the Director of Gold Coast Centre Against Sexual Violence.
7: What type of things does sexual violence cover?
1: Sexual violence covers a whole range of behaviours that are unwanted, uninvited, unwelcome, that have a sexual nature from hands-off, hands-on and penetrative offences. It's the whole range of sexual activity that is not consented to. And some of those can appear quite minor in the scheme of things, leering, suggestive comments about someone's body right through to aggravated rape is a whole continuum of behaviours.
7: The typical advice to women and girls to avoid being sexually assaulted includes things like don't walk alone in the park, in the dark, don't get drunk, don't wear revealing clothes, beware of strangers. What do you think of this sort of advice?
1: Fits the mythology of sexual violence doesn't it? It's the fact is, rape's not going to stop until men stop raping. So we need to shift the focus from the victim survivors to offenders and and potential offenders. We need to be educating men that this behaviour is disrespectful at the very least and criminal at the worst. So we need to be targeting men in the equation of prevention, we need to be focused on men, not what women have to do to avoid violence. It's how men stop violence. I mean, men don't have a right to rape, but, and, and many men don't rape, but men have a collective responsibility to
0: stop rape. Di McLeod, Director of Gold Coast Centre Against Sexual Violence, ending that report by Netta Finney. If someone you know has been affected by sexual violence, phone 1-800-RESPECT 1-800-737-732 or call Lifeline on 13 11 And that's it for The Wire today. You can find all of our stories online at thewire.org.au or subscribe to our podcasts. Just look for The Wire Radio. Today's program came from the studios of Radio 2SER 107.3 here in Sydney and broadcasts around the nation on the community radio network. In Sydney, The Wire is produced on Gadigal country of the Eora Nation and with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We're going to be back again tomorrow, so do tune in again then. I'm Roderick Chambers. Do stay well and thanks for your company.